The Precinct Omega Weekly Podcast is supported by Horizon Wars Zero Dark, sci-fi skirmish war games in a fallen earth. Visit wargamevault at wargamevault.com and search for Zero Dark. It's Friday the 25th of June. My name is Roby Jenkins. Welcome to the Precinct Omega Podcast. I am back to the design series of episodes that we've been doing for the last few months. And uh, what we've been doing is breaking down the fundamental components of miniatures war games and trying to take a long, hard look at what we're trying to achieve with each one and, and how we go about it and how different games go about it and taking a, a historical and and practical analysis of, of whether that's achieving what miniatures games are trying to do. And we've covered off shooting, and we've covered off close quarter battle, and we've covered off armour, and this week we come to movement. And it struck me as I was preparing my notes for this episode that it's strange that I should be coming to movement so late in this series because movement really is absolutely fundamental to miniatures war games. Um, it, in fact, it's, it's so fundamental that if you look at a lot of rule books, when you get to the crunch, when you get to the part of the book that actually tells you how to play the game, how you move is frequently the first thing that is covered in the rules. Um, and I don't think that's that's by accident, and I, and I think that's natural and inevitable for any designer who is really trying to convey concisely the fundamentals of how to play their game. I think starting with movement makes perfect sense. And I, I had a good dig around, okay, I had a brief dig around to see if I could find some really good crunchy quotes about movement and mobility and manoeuvre on, on the real-life battlefield from some eminent general or tactician or whatever it might be that, that would really sum this up. And, and, you know, I was surprised that I couldn't find it because the idea that any given battle, any given campaign is fundamentally won through a superiority of manoeuvre seems like one of those axiomatic statements that someone somewhere should have made. And and yet, as far as I can tell, they haven't. Now, as I say, I, I didn't look very deeply, and maybe you would know better than me. But, you know, I, I do spend time reading the works of people like this, and you know, nobody seems to have made any of these, you know, really pithy, punchy, definitive statements. Uh, but I wonder, I wonder whether the reason for that is for the same reason that we don't have instruction manuals for chairs. You know, the, the truth of it is so fundamental that it doesn't need to be articulated. And yet, when we're talking about tabletop warfare, it really does. And... You know, one could almost say, and, and I'm, this is an extreme position and I'm absolutely not hitching my wagon to this cart, but one should almost be able to say that it ought to be possible 
to win any tabletop war game, miniatures or otherwise, purely through manoeuvre. Now, obviously, if you're going to play a game, you're, you're going to get into the position where you're going to be exchanging fire, you're going to be charging and be fighting and do all those things. But the superiority of manoeuvre should be the decisive factor. And I think that's particularly true of miniatures games, because generally speaking, shooting, close quarter battle, and as we covered, armour and the ability to avoid damage, all of these things tend to be highly concentrated around random number generators of some sort. You know, you roll dice to shoot, you draw cards to fight, you know, whatever it might be, there's always a strong element of randomness in, in the interactions of actual combat. But manoeuvre frequently is not random. Now, there are exceptions. There, there are some games that have components of manoeuvre that might be random, and there are some games where almost all manoeuvre is random, and we'll talk about that later because there is some, some logic and justification to that. But by and large, in a miniatures game, as broadly speaking in life, Maneuver is the one thing over which a commander has a confident degree of control. Uh, now, you may or may not get your orders to somebody in time, but generally speaking, if a commander says to a unit or an element or a regiment, move from A to B, and B is within the regiment's reasonable ability to reach, then by and large, the regiment will move from A to B, and the general can rely upon the fact that that will happen. Now, again, there are obvious exceptions, and we can pick out historical cases where, where that didn't happen. But, in broad terms, that's the way it is. And that makes sense. It makes sense, then, that manoeuvre should be a really decisive aspect of warfare, because if you can be sure of where your regiments are going to move. If you can be sure of where any given troop is going to be at any given time, then it gives you the maximum opportunity to ensure that when you are rolling dice, those dice are maximally weighted in your favour. And that is an important point, and I think that's an important thing that we should take away from this, that there should, in good miniatures wargame design, there should be an interaction between movement and shooting that means that effective manoeuvre delivers more effective shooting. And in my episode on shooting, which is available on the podcast, if you're watching the YouTube video of this episode, it's not up on YouTube, you'll have to dig back into my Podbean episodes and I'll stick a link in the show notes. Um, but in my shooting episode, I talked about my frustration with what I called absolute range. And the classic example is to say that this rifle has a 24-inch range. And within that 24-inch range, it has an exactly equal chance of hitting its target. And beyond that range, it has no chance of hitting its target. And you can get some granularity in that. So you may have half range or short range and long range or short and medium and long range, whatever it might be. But fundamentally, there's no granularity 
it's a fixed. If it's within this range, this is your target hit. It doesn't matter if it's one inch, half an inch, or eight inches within that range, it's still the fundamental same value. Whereas, and, and that, that as a mechanic fundamentally devalues maneuver as a battlefield tool. Because whether you're 12 inches from a target or 8 inches from a target, your odds of hitting that target with shooting are exactly the same. And, and that strikes me as wrong. Manoeuvre should make a difference. Uh, and, and brief aside to big myself up, in Horizon Wars games that makes a big difference because range is very uh, granular. Because you're rolling dice to hit, it, every inch that you are closer to your target matters enormously. Uh, in fact, every inch closer ha has a... Um, it has a geometric improvement on your odds of hitting your target. Um, okay, so that's why I think maneuver is important. It's why I think uh, tabletop wargame designers give it a lot of thought, and, and it also sort of articulates one of the key breakdowns. If you have maneuver that doesn't provide a tactical advantage that's a key flaw, a failure in wargame design. So let's talk instead and move on to, to look at the different options available to the miniatures wargame designer when it comes to what kinds of movement you can consider. And there are two big ones and a kind of little side one. And we'll, we will touch upon the little side one, but it's so... It is quite a fringe idea. It's not one that most designers will consider. But the two big ones that most designers will think about are, fundamentally, they are digital or analogue. Uh, digital movement is usually represented by a grid of some sort. It may be a square grid, it may be a hex grid, but that typifies digital movement. Digital movement is I move one hex, or three hexes, or five hexes, or eight squares, whatever it might be. What makes it digital is that there's no option to move a third of a square or two squares and a quarter. That That isn't something you can do. You move a square or you don't move a square. Full stop. And that's, that's I mean, that's digital movement. I'll come back to the strengths and weaknesses in a moment. Uh, then analogue movement is, of course, the opposite. Analogue is what you'll be familiar with if you play Warhammer, Bolt Action, War Machine, any of those classic you know, high, high uh, visibility miniatures war games. And this is where you, you usually have a tape measure or you may have something like a Song of Blades and Heroes, which uses measuring sticks. But either way, you may have a movement of, say, four inches, but you don't have to move four inches. You can move one inch. You can move two and a quarter inches. You can move three and three quarters inches. Four is just the limit of how far you can move. And it's true that in a lot of games, you will often move up to the maximum. Uh, but I think, actually, when you are encouraged to move up to the maximum move you've got available, that does, again, potentially speak to a weakness in that if you are always trying to move as fast as you can, it suggests that there is a tactical advantage not merely to being within a closer range of the enemy, but to being as close as possible. In other words, you're trying to get into the melee, you're trying to get into close quarter battle. And in some historical games that makes perfect sense. You know, where there isn't a huge emphasis on ranged combat, where you may have 
bows or crossbows, but not in profusion or not with the accuracy or the damage potential of a good axe to the face, then, then that kind of makes sense. But if you're talking about a modern or sci-fi game, you know, there is such a thing as optimal range. Anyway. Um, so that's analog and digital movement. Now the third one, I had a dig around and I couldn't really find a, a good word for it. So I've called it contextual movement. And contextual movement really applies most explicitly when you are playing historical war games and when you are seeking to play a specific historical battle where you have clear documentary evidence about how certain regiments, units or individuals were able to perform on the day. And that contextual movement basically would say that, for example, we know that Regiment X moved from their position to occupy this isolated farmhouse within the first 40 minutes of the battle, for example. So under those cases, circumstances, it's not a case of, ah, right, well, this regiment has a five-inch move, and so they're going to spend the first three turns moving towards that farmhouse. You just go, no, we know that this regiment made this move. Therefore, this move is available to the player, or any equivalent move that the players between them agree is appropriate and equivalent to the move to the farmhouse is also available to that regiment. And that's contextual movement. And, and it's, it's not something in which I'm an expert. Uh, I, I am really not that kind of a historical wargamer. Um, I, I think it requires a sophistication of relationship between players and thought and knowledge of this historical battle that is going to fascinate and appeal to a, a great many historical wargamers, but isn't really within the scope of what I'm talking about. So having identified it as a thing, I, I'm kind of going to put it to one side and come back to the alternatives. Okay, so we're going to talk now about the advantages and disadvantages of digital movement. So your gridded, your hexes, your squares, or any other system of movement that leaves no, uh, no, no room for nuance of, of the distance moved. It's either one, two, three, four, no, no fractions, no paths, just those things. And gridded and hex really are the epitome of this because not only do they dictate the distance that can be moved, but they also very clearly dictate the direction in which movement can occur. So from a square, there may be four or eight directions in which you can move. Four if you only allow orthogonal movement, eight if you also allow diagonal movement. In a gridded, uh, a hex gridded table, uh, then obviously you've got six potential directions for movement. And the great advantage, the, the, the tremendous advantage with hex and square and all gridded digital movement is that it's fundamentally tool-free. You build the tool for movement into the tabletop on which you are playing. So you don't need tape measures, you don't need extra tools, 
and as players you can see instantly looking at any given unit on the table precisely where and how far that unit can move. So there's very little guesswork involved. It's very clear that you're going to go one, two, three hexes in that direction and then you stop. And there's no arguing about that. And anybody who's played more sort of mainline uh, traditional tabletop miniatures games is going to know that the argument phase is practically a part of the game when you're going, oh, well, I think that chap moved to possibly a quarter inch too far. Or, oh, could you, could you really reach that cover with just four inches of movement? I, I'm not sure that you really could. Let's, let's just measure that again. Judge, judge, can we get a judge? No, you know, ah, and it slows things down and frustrates things. Now, I've got to say, I, I should emphasize that I think the vast majority of Miniatures Wargames players, even in tournaments, don't do that. I think the majority take it on good faith that their opponent is playing fair by the rules, and most people do absolutely play fair by the rules. But we all know that those people are out there who are going to call you on every fraction of extra movement you may or may not have taken. Um, and what's worse is you know, you know that those people are also the worst people at trying to take advantage of themselves. Uh, nobody wants to play those people. And in a scenario with digital movement, that isn't a problem. It's really clear. You know, oh, you started in that hex, you finished in that hex, that's six hexes. Easy, inarguable, absolutely crystal clear to everybody involved in the play. And that's really good. However, there are some disadvantages. One disadvantage which bothers me, although I have to say it may just be me, I'm not sure how, how many other people are bothered by this, is when it comes to shooting in the same scenario. Because counting squares or hexes is pretty dull. You know, if you're actually moving something, you go, well, I start here and I move one, two, three, four, five hexes. There, my movement is done. Great, that's lovely. I've got no problem with that at all. But if you're going to have realistic weapon ranges, particularly in a modern or sci-fi game, and your movement might be five or six, but your weapon range might be 18, 20, 24 or longer, suddenly you're going, well, I've got a rep weapon range of 36 and I want to target that mech over there and so I'm going to count to see if you're in range. A one, two, three, four, five, six. I, I'm not going to force this upon you but you can see where we're going. You know, once you get beyond about 11 or 12 hexes it suddenly becomes a very boring and laborious process and of course when you're measuring ranges then all of a sudden you do get potential for argument. You say, oh, well, you measure... Because if you're not in an exactly straight line of hexes, well, you, you know, you, you jinked left there. But if you jinked left there, it would have been an extra hex. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it becomes difficult. But that, in many ways, is something that can be overcome. You know, I'm working at the moment on a version of Horizon Wars Zero Dark... Uh, called FEAR, uh, which is a rather forced acronym for fighting in enclosed areas. Uh, and the idea is that it's a port of the rules for Zero Dark onto a gridded surface. Typically a square gridded surface, but I'm sure people will try and make it work on a hex gridded surface. And 
one of the things that I struggled with with this at the start was counting ranges and the right way to count ranges. And eventually, do you know what? I gave up and I just said, no, 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 no. We've got, we've got square movement, uh, but range in shooting is still measured with a tape measure. So I'm forcing people to still need a tape measure to play the game. You measure the range to stuff with a tape measure. It just made more sense um, for a lot of reasons. It was just easier than forcing people to count hexes, use a tape measure. So that's one way around it. Um, and if you're interested, FIA should be finished and out somewhere around the end of the summer. So I'm saying August, September, depending on when you think the summer finishes. Um, so that's uh, one of the, the, the challenges with digital movement. But the far more important and significant challenge is that lack of nuance. Yes, it's clear, but it's also constraining. It means, well, I don't want to move that unit a whole hex, because a whole hex means I'm no longer in cover. What I want to do is move it half a hex so that I can see around the corner of that building, but I still benefit from cover. But if I move a whole hex, I get no cover. And if I don't move any hexes, I can't see around the building. And that's frustrating because it feels like my unit ought to be able to look around the edge of that building and still gain the benefit of being partially concealed by the building. And that's one of those frustrating aspects that just come up in digital movement and doesn't apply to analog movement. And those are my thoughts on, on the advantages and disadvantages on digital movement. So obviously I need to move on now and talk about the advantages and disadvantages of analog movement. And I've kind of already touched upon this, but the, a big advantage of analog movement is that they don't have one of the major disadvantages of digital movement that I didn't really talk about, which is with analog movement, you don't need a gridded surface. One of the big disadvantages, of course, that I didn't mention with digital movement is that you do need to have the grid. Um, and analog movement doesn't. And, you know, you may say, oh, well, that's not, it's not hard to find a, a gridded surface or a mat or whatever. And you go, yes, it's not. But once you've got, say, let's just, let's take a, a square grid surface. You know, you've got an A1 poster with a square grid on it. Now, how do you put terrain onto that? You know, that terrain, if it gets large enough, it starts to have to have its own grids and you've got to, make sure that that grid aligns with the underlying grid. And it leaves, it, it constrains your, your freedom of creativity. Um, and if you want to have hills and gullies and trenches and ruined buildings and obstacles, all of a sudden you're, you're constrained. And if you've ever played uh, Dungeons and Dragons on a grid, or if you played, my favorite one uh, was the old Star Wars collectible miniatures game from WizKids, which was such a beautifully designed game uh, let down by a terrible miniatures range. Um, I would absolutely play that game again in a heartbeat with the Imperial Assault miniatures um, and would not play it, interestingly, with the Legion miniatures. I, I have recently bought some Legion miniatures and I'm, I'm deeply unimpressed um, on a lot of 
reasons, not least being the fact that they all now seem to be 40 mil scale, which is very confusing. Um, anyway, Imperial Assault Miniatures, I would love to play the Star Wars Collectible Miniatures game again, and I, I got rid of the rulebook years ago, and I wish I hadn't. Anyway, that's a total, total divergence. Um, if you look at games like that, that come with a map, uh, a map that, that lays out the terrain on the board, that's great because you've got the terrain on the mat and you can see exactly how it aligns with the grid, but you can't add anything to it. Or if you can, it can only be small things or things that have been explicitly designed with the grid for that particular size of grid. You couldn't then pick up the same things and put them onto a hex grid because they've got the wrong shape of grid. So that's a real problem. And of course there's an access problem because playing a miniatures game on a mat requires you to have a mat and if you can't afford to have a mat, that's an obstacle. And I like access. Access is an important feature to a well-designed miniatures game for me that, that most people should be able to play it with whatever tools they have to hand. Um, and requiring a grid is, is more onerous. Now a square grid is pretty easy to make yourself. A hex grid on the other hand, much as I like hex grids, it's really hard to make one yourself. Um, they really are something that you have to buy from somewhere. Uh, or, or, or at the very least print out to your own design and obviously that, that's a, an investment of time and money that a lot of wargamers simply don't have. So that's a big drawback and, and something you get from the freeform table where you're going to be using uh, analog movement is that the table can be any size you like. It can be any size, it can be any shape, it can have whatever terrain you want in whatever amount or scale. The, the freedom that you gain from using analog movement is enormous. So that's, that's a huge important uh, advantage to analog movement, but it's only an advantage insofar as it contrasts with digital movement. The greater advantage of analog movement that's important is that element of nuance um, that, that means that you can choose between, you know, let's say your limit is zero and your maximum is four, you can pick anywhere along that line. So your, your options are essentially infinite. And this shows strongly in games that make use of, uh, well, that make use of that, that granular ability. And a, a classic example is 3rd edition Infinity, where you had rules that said that you gained cover as long as at least a third of the miniature silhouette was concealed by cover. And that meant that there was a lot of very careful use of movement to ensure that you moved a miniature just far enough that it still benefited from cover, but still had a line of sight to the target. Now, a lot of that has been kicked out of the door with 4th edition, where any amount of cover counts as cover, but it still applies, just, just on a lesser basis. And I understand why Corvus Belli has done that, even if it has really messed with the immersive quality of the rules that it that it was really pursuing in second edition. Um, still a good game, but perhaps it's lost lost something in that transition. So that nuance is super important, but 
there is a huge disadvantage to analog movement and that I've already alluded to, which is the problem of hair-splitting gamesmanship. Now, I don't necessarily mean, as I suggested before, people who are trying to push that extra quarter of an inch of movement out of it in a cheaty way. I mean, actually, within the rules themselves, there is that hair-splitting gamesmanship. And the classic example of this is something like uh, Warhammer Fantasy Battle 6th edition or the still current Warhammer historical rules, where um, having the correct alignment on your wheel as a regiment you know, really makes a huge difference as to whether your regiment is perfectly aligned when it contacts your opponent and then wheels to face. And it basically... It means that games can be won and lost over a matter of a fraction of an inch or a fraction of an uh, of a degree of angle, and 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 that seems to me wrong. You know that seems to be rendering what's supposed to be an immersive experience that replicates the the, the chaos and excitement and passion of a battle into something as passionless as a geometric exercise um, and and that's a shame but and, and you get more of that in analog movement than you get in digital movement because analog leaves that freedom you know in in digital in a hex grid or a, even square grids even better but in a hex grid you know there are only six directions in which you can be facing you know that's one of the things when it comes to facing which side of the hex are you facing you know, you can't be halfway between two, it's one or the other. Even more so with a square grid. Are you facing a side, or are you facing a corner? One or the other. Can't be halfway between the two. Which one is it going to be? And that really helps fight against that hair-splitting gamesmanship that can be a real uh, pain in the neck to the designers of, of miniatures war games. And to an extent to the players as well, but particularly to the designers, because the object of the designer is to create a product that immerses you in the experience, that makes you feel the same kind of tensions or pushes you to the same kind of decision-making that might face a general commanding this vast army or a, a leader of this elite team or whatever it might be. That's, that's what you're trying to get to. You're trying to immerse them in the story, the narrative, the experience. And the moment that is thrown out by a player using pure geometric analysis to secure a statistically more probable victory, they are... the player is giving up something for... for the win, for, for, for the intellectual win, that means it ends up being an emotional loss. Do you follow me? Is that a reasonable way to express it? I, I think so. Okay, so that's talked about the two key areas of, of movement, their advantages and their disadvantages. I'm not going to talk about contextual movement because it's it's too sophisticated an idea and I don't have the expertise to, to grant it a fair, a fair analysis. So we're going to move on from here and talk about the interrelationship of morale and manoeuvre. Now, what I want to do in this section isn't get too deep into the weeds of morale, because that's a subject 
for another episode. Uh, and it, it deserves a lot of unpacking. But what I did want to talk about, seeing as we're talking about manoeuvre, is tackle what I think are some misconceptions about the relationship between manoeuvre and morale. And you know, this is one of these areas where, I mean, I'm always open to, to criticism and alternative views and, and challenges to my opinions. That's absolutely fine. But this this is one where perhaps I'm even more open to the idea that not only that you could disagree with me, which is fine, but that actually that I could be wrong. But this is my opinion based on both practical experience and and first-hand conversations with people who've been affected by this, as well as wider reading in the field of military history. There is this popular idea that when a soldier or a regiment's morale is broken, they will flee from the battlefield. And I think that in many cases, not all, but in many cases, that is a misconception. Um, now, in, in ancient historical warfare, I think there is a great deal more truth to it. And ancient historical is definitely not my, my field of expertise. Um, but even in ancient historical warfare, there, this is fundamentally true. A fleeing enemy is still a problem, because a fleeing enemy is physically capable of manoeuvre. You can see that they are capable of manoeuvre because they are fleeing. If they flee far enough that they can reform, they will still present you with a problem. So a fleeing enemy isn't something that a general can afford to ignore. Uh, fleeing might be thought of retreating in disorder. And a retreat is a tactical decision. Now, fleeing in disorder may be the result of individual tactile, tactical decisions made by soldiers who've decided they cannot continue, or it might be the result of a tactical decision by a commander who has decided that the most efficient way to exit and end up with the most number of lives saved is to withdraw in disorder. And I think that is true in all historical periods. And I think the, the idea that a fleeing enemy is somehow no longer a problem is too easily sold in a lot of miniatures games. Their morale is broken, they are fleeing, remove them from the table. Or they flee and they continue to flee until they reach the edge of the table and then they are removed. You know? And, and that seems to happen too often. Um, and there are games that do address that. It has to be said, there are games that, that leave plenty of room for a fleeing regiment or unit to uh, uh, regroup on its way, to, to find its morale and to regroup and to return to the battle. Um, so, you know, it, it is addressed in, in some, many rule sets in that way, generally speaking, too much emphasis is placed on the idea that a fleeing enemy is, is essentially defeated when that is not true. If we pull forward more into my area of expertise, which is the, the modern near future and science fiction warfare scenarios, 
my understanding and experience of a loss of morale in a combat scenario where you have a situation where ballistic weapons are the dominant form of conflict decider, uh, a soldier or indeed a unit whose morale has been broken will not flee. What they will do is cease moving. Uh, and it's very simple human psychology. The answer is, in this location right now, I am not being shot. Now, there may be shooting going on over my head, there may be rounds falling around me on every side, but where I am right now, I am still alive. And the brain's logical step is, therefore, I will not move. Anywhere around me looks more dangerous than the place I am right now. Therefore, I shall remain fixed in place until the noise has stopped. And that is the result of a broken morale in a modern near future or science fiction setting, in my opinion. Um, by contrast, if a unit in that scenario has the wherewithal to withdraw, that automatically implies that its morale is not broken because it has enough morale to get up, to face the risk of incoming fire and to move backwards to a new location that is going to be tactically advantageous. And I think that is fundamentally misunderstood by the vast majority of writers of tabletop miniatures wargames. That there is this idea that even in a modern or science fiction setting, that a broken unit will up and flee. They will not. They will fix in place. Uh, and some will say, well, the exception, what if they've got enemy right on top of them that are fighting them? Well, the answer is they will die. If their morale is broken, they won't flee. They will just die. Um, and actually, it's also worth saying that the imminence of somebody who is right in front of you with the intention to kill you generally means you will fight. Uh, you will fight or you will surrender. That, that's the two options. Um, the idea of having your morale broken and trying to run away from that situation, it, it, practically speaking, it tends not to come up. Uh, fight or surrender are, are the two opportunities. And if your opponent is not one that is likely to accept a surrender, there is only one option. Uh, there is nothing better for one's will to fight than having an enemy who wants to kill you immediately in your face. Uh, I, think, I think that is reasonable to say. Now, again, as I have often said, that isn't my personal experience. I have never been face-to-face -face with an enemy who wanted to kill me. Um, uh, my, my military career did not involve any face-to-face -face combat. I was, in fact, in the medical services. But through my work with the medical services, I did come into combat. Into combat. I never went into combat. I did come into contact with soldiers who had been face-to-face -face with the enemy, and as an officer, I was expected to read around the subject in great detail, and the psychology of warfare was something that was absolutely fundamental to our work, and that was very much my impression of how things would pan out. Again, if you have actual combat experience and you can tell me differently, I will absolutely defer to your immediate, explicit personal experience. But when it comes to the writing of tabletop miniatures war games, a million miles away from actual real-life combat, that is the solution that 
I think would deliver a more realistic experience. So as I said, I want to go into morale in much more detail in a future episode, but when it comes to maneuver and the ability of a unit, regiment, or an individual to maneuver when they are suffering from low or broken morale, that is something that I think that many writers uh, misrepresent in their rules. Now, before I finish, I'm going to do something very dangerous, and that is I'm going to pick on a particular historical battle, and I'm going to apply my thoughts that I've already articulated about how manoeuvre works uh, in combat to that battle, because it can look like, at first glance, an exception. Now, as I said, ancient historical warfare is not my specialisation. I have done some reading around. I have done a little bit of research all into very much second-hand or third-hand sources. If you are a specialist historian in ancient warfare, I, I defer entirely to you. But we're going to talk briefly about the Battle of Thermopylae. Now, Thermopylae was nothing like as simple as it's presented, of course, in the movie 300. But the fundamental core of that movie it pretty much stands the test. What you've got is a Greco-Spartan contingent fixed in place, attacked by a much larger Persian army seeking to pass through the area that the Greco-Spartan force is defending. And it's an example, it's a potential counterexample to my suggestion that manoeuvre wins battles because, of course, the Greco-Spartans refused to manoeuvre. And that was very much their strategy, was that they were blocking this optimal path for the Persian army's transition through into the greater Greek region at Thermopylae, and they were not going to move. Um, large portions of the Greco-Spartan force did retire, did withdraw through an agreement or, or some possibly out of cowardice, depending on, on how you want to read the sources. But fundamentally, that the core of the Greco-Spartan force and, of course, the, the famous Leonidas 300 Spartans, whether or not they were actually 300, another question, you know, were there holding back the Persian attack by not manoeuvring. The problem with our perspective on Thermopylae is that in pure tabletop wargaming terms, the Greco-Spartan force lost. They were all killed. It, it was a tabling. Now, in historical terms, they won because they bought a lot of time and they also raised the spirit of the Greek city-states to band together and oppose the Persian attack, and most importantly, they gave Athens time to evacuate the city. Um, but in tabletop terms, they lost. It just took them a long time to lose. And the Persians succeeded because initially their freedom of manoeuvre was constrained by the Greco-Spartan uh, force. They wanted to travel forwards, the Greco-Spartan force stood in front of them, and there was, there was no opportunity for the Persians to manoeuvre in a way that would allow them to achieve victory. Only when they discovered 
the mountain route around to reach behind the Greco-Spartan force, would they finally wipe them out? Now, there are many stories about how they found that. Probably a, a, a betrayer of some sort, a traitor. Anyway, regardless, they did find it. They were able to manoeuvre, and in manoeuvring, they came around behind the Greco-Spartan force and they defeated them. Had the Persians known about the opportunity to outflank the Greco-Spartans at the very beginning of the battle, Thermopylae would not have been the gloriously remembered last stand that we have today. So that, I hope, sort of illustrates when I was working through this episode and planning it and, and thinking about it, Thermopylae was far from the only battle that I looked at. You know, I looked around at others such as Cannae and Waterloo and a variety of others, uh, Hastings, all areas where an argument could be made that a static position and a refusal to manoeuvre could have been seen as leading to victory. Uh, and interestingly, in each case, whilst there was a sound argument for, for example, the, the Saxon position at Hastings of not moving and refusing to manoeuvre and, and refusing to allow uh, the Normans to use their fast cavalry to their advantage, ultimately, it was manoeuvre that won the battle because it was the fainted retreat, or possibly genuine retreat, that was then rallied. A good example back to our call about morale, that just because something's fleeing doesn't mean it's not a threat. The retreat by the Normans that caused the Saxon downhill charge that then allowed them to bring their superior uh, manoeuvrability of their cavalry to bear on the Saxons and win the battle. So fundamentally, manoeuvre is where battles are won. And, and Waterloo was so vastly complicated that I, I quickly gave up trying to illustrate it through that. But it applies. It applies to as many battles as I could find. Um, do dig them out. If you know a counterexample where a battle was won by a refusal to manoeuvre, do let me know. Stick it in the comments. Um, and I would be delighted to acknowledge your superior knowledge of ancient military history. Right, that's all I've got to say for this week. I hope you enjoyed that. We will be looking at morale. It may be in two weeks' time, or it may not. I've got some great interviews lined up. Uh, I've got them scheduled in the calendar. I'm looking forward to having them. Um, but obviously, the nature of interviews is they, they may or may not work out as planned. Um, if they don't, then in two weeks' time, we'll talk about morale. If not, it'll probably be four weeks' time. And I'll probably need it, because morale is a big subject, and it's been done so many different ways. And in my opinion, hardly anybody does it right. Okay. That's all I've got to say. Thank you very much for listening. I will speak to you again next week. The Precinct Omega Game Design Podcast is supported by our patrons on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Precinct Omega to help us continue developing new games and creating hobby content for war games enthusiasts all over the world.